This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Inglis, number one in its field. Most racehorse syndication companies operate on a straightforward format of purchasing a horse, usually a yearling, launching a costly advertising campaign to attract new owners, and then syndicating the horse in a predetermined number of shares. That's how Laurel Oak Bloodstock started off when Louis and Jill Mahika established the business 32 years ago. The very longevity of the company is testimony to the integrity and professionalism of its founders. Louis Mahika decided to change direction with Laurel Oak about 14 years ago. Rather than risk uh, self-destruction with massive advertising budgets, Louis decided to establish a specialised service for existing clients. He still buys yearlings on request of clients, but in the main, he offers the style of ownership that the client wants. Laurel Oak currently boasts a client base of about 1,400 loyal and devoted horse lovers and racing fans. Louis Mahika started his working life as an accountant and was working for Coopers and Lybrand when his fascination with racing began. Louis Mahika is online to talk to us on the podcast. Lovely to have you on board, Louis. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, John. It's a nice introduction. It summarises my life very quickly. It's gone very, very quickly the 32 years because I still feel like I'm a new kid on the block. You've crammed a bit into it though, haven't you? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, very <laughs> enjoyable. It was uh, to be able to go and do, uh, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but to be able to work in my, make a career out of my passion was just a, hmm. a wonderful opportunity and uh, could I really only do it with the support of my wife, Jill, who at the time uh, was the breadwinner, hmm. and, but we've survived. We've survived. <laughs> In the early 1980s, you were playing competition soccer for the Granville Waratahs, and team members would often gather at the Albion Hotel at Parramatta. I think Brian Hambly owned that pub at one stage. Exactly, yes. Grumpy, he was our uh, publican. He was my publican when I lived in Willoughby. He moved to the Albion, and when I moved, we got married and I moved, he became my publican again. So he's a guy who really did enjoy his company and is a great publican. One of your teammates with the Granville Waratahs was a fellow called Brian Guy, who wasn't training horses back then. His dad was still alive, in fact. Yes, and Brian was working for his dad. Bullet Performer. Uh, is That's the horse it. that probably started it all, Louis? What's the story? Uh, we we um, one particular night after training. Wednesday was training night, and we went across the Albion after training as we do or did. <laughs> and uh, that particular day, uh, many of the members of the team had uh, involvement in a horse called Lacquer Coin, which was uh, I still remember it's breeding no alimony at a currency bell, and it debuted at Gosford and it won on debut. And, and uh, Brian had, had put together a syndicate together of the um, soccer players, and this was all happened before I joined the team. Mm-hmm. Well, we had the biggest party you could imagine that night in the pub, and a few of the other guys uh, <laughs> approached me that night and said, I think we should do something like this. So we spoke to Brian and the following mm-hmm. uh, sales, which would have been probably the 84 summer yielding sale back then, the English summer yielding sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, he bought a jukebox for about maybe four or $5,000, and we called it Bullet Performer. Mm-hmm. A great name for one by Jukebox. That's it. And then I, I became the linchpin in all that. I think I worked, we worked out probably had six guys from the soccer team, six guys from the cricket team, six guys from work mm. type of thing. And uh, I was coordinating and collected the money and 
did all the communicating and organised everything for, uh, to do with the horse and uh, got a little taste for it. And um, mm. that's what prompted me to take a gamble in life. Um, a couple of years later, we had the situation in life where we had no mortgage and no children. Mm. We paid our first unit off. Um, Jill and I, we'd been married for five years at the time. Mm. And uh, we took a punt and started uh, Laurel Oak Thoroughbreds, it was, the syndication company. Mm. And um, and I've never been out of debt since. You so, went to the sales in 1986 with a firm resolve to buy five yearlings at various sales. You even got to Dubbo. I didn't end up going to Dubbo. Jenny Churchill, who uh, mm. still is uh, known in the industry as the uh, editor of the site, the, the uh, Blue Bloods annual stadiums magazine or by mm. a book, and um, she still edits that, Jenny, but she went to the Dubbo sales and she bought Georgian Gold for us there. But, yes, we bought five yeah. horses in those in that first year. Georgian Gold, 48 starts, five wins, seven seconds and eight thirds. And I can clearly remember that little mare, Lou. She, at one stage, ran nine straight placings on metropolitan tracks but could not get home. That's it, and we thought we were unlucky. And uh, and in those days, I used to send a check out to. And when I went went down to my fortnightly trip down to the post office box, and there was no check from the Sydney Turf Club or Australian Jockey Club there, I realised that probably running a place wasn't too bad after all. Was it? <laughs> How true! Now, Smooth Century was another one of those first five yearlings. Uh, he won four races. You were underbidded in this particular year on a horse called Patrero, who won three Group 1s and almost a million dollars. You missed yes. out. Yes. Yep, I was under bit of um, The first horse we bought at the sale was Smooth Century, and I remember Lot 300, hmm. still remember to this day, Lot 300 was uh, this Red Tony horse, and we bid it, I think, we sold for 9500 I think our limit was going to be hmm. um, 6000 or something, but I kept bidding, and Steve Hood, who was my uh, mentor at the sales at the time, said either Doc Chapman bought it. I didn't know Doc Chapman from Adam, but mm. um, I, I certainly do it know Doc now. Mm. Uh, and he said, Doc Chapman bought it, and that's all we thought. So we ended up buying lot 323, which never raced. Mm. And that was an early lesson in the little forks in the road that yielding sales provide for you because, as you said, mm. Petrero went on to win three group ones, mm. and the, the filly we bought instead um, and never made, made it to the races because she went in the wind. That was the one by Covetous. That's it. Now, you also bought a horse called Crown Joker at yes, the English a- Easter sale. He won 15 races, Lou. Yeah, it was a fantastic horse for us, yes. He and George and Gold really carried us in those in that first year. I know Smooth Century was a great contributor. We had some fun days with him. Mm. But the other two were the real stalwarts that are that sort of gave us the impetus to keep going and gave us something to talk about. So, yeah, he was fantastic. Took yeah. him a while to win. He raced in good company early on. Yeah. And took him a while to win, but once he got warmed up, he uh, he started winning a lot of races. Oh, well, he certainly did. You went to the Melbourne Premier Sale and you bought a brother to show Moran, but he didn't but race either. He didn't race. He uh, bowed tendons early. I, I didn't know a lot about confirmation back then, and I won't mention names, but the, at, at that sale I was poorly advised and, Mick could uh, express alarm at the his confirmation when he first saw him, and uh, the horse subsequently bowed a tendon, or bowed to might have been two tendons, but certainly bowed a tendon. And uh, when he was in the paddock, he died of a heart attack. And at that point in time, because he was the most expensive of our five horses, and the others hadn't raced yet, he was uh, the insurance payout meant he was our highest earner at that mm. point in time. Yeah, yeah. So. Now, Lou, yeah. just for the record, 
the very last horse you syndicated by advertising before you changed direction was a horse called Preceptor in 2005. Was he the first one you sent to Melbourne to a trainer called Tony Noonan? No, no, Tony. The, the Tony story goes back probably uh, about oh, maybe six or seven or eight years earlier than that. Right. Um, yeah, um, we, because we're the... Uh, pe- um, one of our brain clients, brain pedigree analysis clients, was Jonathan Munns, and I'd never met Jonathan at the time. Mm. But he rang me out. I'd spoken to him on the phone many times, and he rang me out of the blue one day. He said my uh, newsletter arrived on his on his uh, desk, and uh, he was just started and uh, moved his horses to a young trainer, and uh, they're looking to align themselves with a syndicator. And uh, my email, my my mail, it was in those days, no email. Um, my newsletter arrived and so, so he rang me and I said, yes, I'm happy to explore new opportunities. And uh, he asked me if I'd ever heard of Tony Noonan. I said, no. And then he asked me if I'd ever heard of Bionic Best. And I said, yes. So I remember backing it in November the other recently when it had won it uh, at Sandown. And he said, well, here's the train of Bionic Best. I said, it must be all right then. Mm, yeah. And um, so I went to the Melbourne sales, met Tony on the morning of the first sale. And uh, we got on fantastically from day one. From from the very beginning, we we became good mates and uh, mm. had similar interest in how we would, looked at the horses. And the first horse we bought was Carolina Moon, and he ended up being a very good city winning horse. And a lot of the owners, a lot of the people who replied to the ads then, are still very very close friends to this day. And that was mm. in the probably sixty seven, ninety seven, ninety eight, something like that. Yep. You pride yourself on having purchased some real bargains at the yearling sales over the years, but the most expensive one you've ever purchased is currently racing. It's a schnitzel filly called Exoplanet. You paid $480,000, which is big enough, but uh, if you look at the prices these last couple of years at the sales all over Australia, it's not really that much at all. I know that sounds frightening. Now, yes, Exoplanet Lewis had one start and was very field shy. We haven't seen yet what she can really do. That's correct, yes. Uh, she's trialled well a few times and Chris has given a good, uh, expressed a good opinion of her and that's Chris Waller who trains her mm. and uh, she has been nominated for uh, Canopy next Friday night with Wyong next Saturday, the 5th of January being option, another option for her for a second race start. Lou, the Laurel Oak colours have become very well known and easily identifiable wherever they appear. White, green cross sashes, red sleeves and a red cap. Where did they come from? And when we started racing with Bullet Perform, we raced in Brian Guy's uh, blue and gold halves, the Parramatta colours, because he was a massive and still is a massive Eels fan. And uh, after we had a few starts, the, the syndicate, as you do, decided that we should get our own colours. And I remember Steve Hood at the time said that uh, red cap and red sleeves are usually easy to see. So um, our friend uh, Michael Regan went to the yeah, time on his hands back then and uh, went to the AJC offices when uh, the colours available colours were in a box. Uh, the box came out. He was flicking through the, uh, the looking for combinations that might work. And I remember Michael telling me that he had a uh, those colours, um, but with orange sleeves, uh, green cross sashes, orange sleeves, orange cap were available. And he asked if we could have that red sleeves, red cap, mm. and they became our colours. So Bullet Performer raced in those colours before Laurel Oak uh, started, but then when we started Laurel Oak, uh, we just continued with those colours. Now, Lou, I mentioned in the intro that you still buy the odd yearling when requested by clients, but in the main, 
you want to offer the style of ownership that clients want. Now, in a nutshell, can you describe for me the services that you now execute, the services you, that Laurel Oak now offers? Yeah, I guess we summarise what we do uh, in in uh, that we try and uh, provide an, an enjoyable racing experience for owners, just give them an opportunity to enjoy their racing however they want. Now, now the main form of that is actually is racehorse ownership, so that part hasn't changed. Um, so ra- rather than being Laurel Oak Thoroughbreds, it was a syndicating company, it's dormant now, and Laurel Oak Bloodstock literally operates as a bloodstock agent. We're members of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents, mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, that company basically offers the total service. Now, the service starts with the ownership side, that's the main main service, and we have this flexibility. We always prided ourselves on flexibility of ownership. Now, flexibility of ownership means instead of being regimented with um, 20 shares or 5% shares or whatever a particular size, you can just take a percentage that, that suits you. Mm-hmm. And that that um, probably due to the GFC, we went down to um, from 25 being the minimum normal share to 1% because that's the way the world wanted to do it. And so we still have a lot of clients who have 1% shares. Um, but in the majority, they'd be 5%, 10%, some two and a half. But what we've tried to do in the last couple of years, what we found when we uh, let that go to um, un- un- uncontrolled or unpatrolled, I suppose, or not monitors, probably the right word, that we end up with a couple of situations where we had way too many people in the horses and creates mounting yard congestion. And that was not very pleasant. So what, what we've done in the past year, particularly, and we'll be doing again this year, is um, we've got clients who prefer 10 to 14 um, uh people in a horse so they'd be five to ten shares five to ten percent share minimums mm-hmm. uh, or some combination thereof others want a 20 maximum they would be more flexible but we just cap it at 20 so if there's a if there's a, if one person wants one percent percent you need need someone else needs to take at least 10 percent so you end up with limiting it to 20 mm-hmm. and we've got other situations where um, we have a, a few horses where we uh, try and limit it to around 30 people so it's a mixture mm-hmm. of ones and twos and fives and tens and uh, and do that and within that that flexibility we've got a lot of people can then choose the size of share they want we've got um, a lot of the port yearlings we buy now are, are commercial are fillies with commercial um future commercial uh breeding quality um, mm. so they've got residual value and that will be with the intention of breeding from them so a lot of our clients now actually operate commercial breeding operations and um, we manage it for them mm. and we look to buy fillies that have got good pedigrees that will race on improve their value and then become broodmares in the future uh, so we have other other cheaper horses which are just designed to be race horses and so we've got so not only is there flexibility in shareholding there's flexibility in the size of the dollar value that we buy and um the, we also have a lot of manage a lot of brood mares because I manage about 15 mares at a time, so people can get involved in breeding on a large scale or a small scale, mm. and uh, so that's become growing in popularity as well. Very much targeting commercial breeding. We found that breeding to race is a not a great way to go. I'm not going to go into the, the nuances and details of that now, but the short answer is if you ended up uh, with a bad broodmare and you've bred five horses out of it and raced them all, it's a very souring experience. So mm. uh, it's better off breeding commercially, selling them, and if you pick and choose one along the way that you race, that's a, that's a better way to go mm. uh, while, you've, uh, while you're getting a return on the breeding of the others, and that's working very well, very well that side of things. And then beyond the the racing side. We also get involved in the odd overseas stay. Very, they, they, they're coming in by the 
truckload at the moment, but um, the boatload or plane load, and uh, we try and restrict that to just one or two a year where we take an interest in something we think is good value and has a chance. So that's that's another aspect that's very growing in popularity throughout Australia, buying tried imported horses, but we're only just dabbling in that in a smaller way. And then beyond the, the racing side, then we offer, um, we hope people have a good time uh with their racing involvement, with their involvement with Laurel Oak. And so that, so the social side, well, first of all, we want to make the race day experience as good as possible. So we coordinate ticketing for owners and guests, and that can be a large logistic exercise come race day, just to make sure as many people can get in the mounting yard as possible and all the guests can get have as good a day as possible. Uh, we organise lunches and dinners um, for either syndicates or smaller groups for special occasions or just uh, because the mood of the moment um, strikes it. Uh, we organise a lot of racing and um, non-racing functions. So, for example, mm. the National Jockeys Trust lunch um, ran with each year. This, mm. uh, we, we have organised tables this year. We had three tables, so we had 30 people there supporting mm. that. Mm. And if we see any other opportunity that um, people would enjoy, uh, then we'll send out an email. If we get 10 people, then so be it. If we get 30 people, so be it. We have uh, four Laurel Oak golf days a year, which are very popular. And uh, next August is actually the 100th Laurel Oak Golf Day, so that's how long I've been doing those, <laughs> which is a Sound scary thought. <laughs> now, uh, Luke, yep. if we continue along this trajectory, we yep. won't be able to mention some of the wonderful horses you've syndicated and, and, and organised. Yeah. Well, so, the short answer, I'll, I'll do it in a nutshell, John, but the major race meetings, Cup Week, Cox Play, Slipper, racing tours we do royal ascot every year we do a new zealand stud, stud tour every two years and we do other tours um to anywhere else so that's about it though that's, that's, <laughs> well done well done that fills the year the 2019 english premier yearling sale will be held at oakland's junction in melbourne where 786 lots have been catalogued for four days of selling between the third and the sixth of march the Premier Sale has produced some of Australia's best performers in the last year, including Group 1 winning two-year-olds written by and Seabrook, four-time Group 1 winner Santa Anna Lane and the exciting three-year-old Ring-a-Ding-Ding. The 2019 Premier Catalogue is bursting with quality and features siblings to 73 stakes winners and eight Group 1 winners, including Boom Time, Shocking, Pinker Pinker and Seabrook. The sale will be held at a new look Oakland's complex, which is undergoing an $8 million refurbishment, making it one of the best auction houses in the world. The dates again, March 3rd to March 6th, and catalogues are available online at english.com.au or in hard copy for the 2019 Premier Yearling Sale. Now, Lou, one of your real success stories was Into the Night. He won nine races, 800,000. You and Keith Dryden, with whom you'd formed a very successful association by this time, went to the Magic Million sales and your bank was $60,000. You said to Keith, don't you dare exceed 60000 You went away then to look at some other horses and you didn't see the transaction take place. Yeah, the... Um, yeah, the, the Basically, Keith said he'd spend sixty, and that's what he promised. He, he it was a, he was it was a Blues Brothers moment for the first time in about six or seven years. Yeah. We hadn't had a horse with Keith, yeah. and he tried to get get the band back together again. So I always call it the Blues Brothers moment. 
And Keith said he's going to spend 60000 And I did the legwork and I gave him a short list of horses. Keith checked them out. We all agreed after pedigree analysis inspection, this was the one we wanted. Keith said, I won't go more than 60. I was watching it with Jill going through the ring. And I said, oh, that's our horse. It's gone to 80 now. We haven't got it. Mm-hmm. And when I saw Keith later, he was shaking like a leaf. And I said, I said oh, bad luck about you. That missed out on that horse. He said, no, 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 I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he said, are you still in? I said, oh, I'm sure. I no worries, Keith. And, yeah. uh, and and Keith had uh, 100% of the horse covered and 70% of the people who committed reneged on the exercise because uh, he was, wasn't by a fashionable stallion. He was by rhythm. Yeah. And uh, so, we had to, so Keith had to start again asking clients. Um, and, you know, we helped him as well as best we could to fill the horse. And we quickly filled the horse anyhow. Mm. And uh, the rest was just a very, very good story. Mm. I think it's fair to say your all-time favourite is Rebel Dane, recently retired with a terrific record. He's a great-grandson of George and Gold. He won eight races. He won $2.4 million. He won two Group 1s, and he was actually bred by Laurel Oak. That's correct. Yes, uh, we kept George and Gold to breed from. She only had a few, a few foals before she died sadly in Falworth actually and uh they, but each generation produced another couple of foals and they and there's always talent amongst them with if a webnav wasn't sort of uh, sale sale commercial quality it was good racing enjoyable racing talent city quality racing talent that owners enjoyed and we did this each generation and and Texarkana Rebel Dane's mother was similar showed good city class ability without actually winning in the city and EI cut her career short um, she actually got her EI um, and then bled when she was put back into training, so she was retired mm. uh, without racing again. And so the first foal was Rebel Dane. Uh, he was a particularly non-commercial horse at the time, so um, one I can't. All I can do is to take credit for recommending the mating at the time through Brain, mm. because I can't. I can't even claim credit to uh, uh, that the, we should keep him and race him. I put it to the owners that we've got a non-commercial horse here. Would you like to either race him yourselves or would we lease him to a country trainer? Because I don't think a city trainer would take him. Mm. And to a man, they said, no, we haven't had a runner for a while. We'll, we'll lease him and we'll, we'll keep him and race him ourselves. Mm. And uh, wasn't that a happy decision? A terrific performer in the Laurel Oak Colours was a gelding called Tiwa Khan. He won 19 races, Lou. That is hard to do. Most of them were at Canberra for Keith Dryden, and he was a real specialist over the 1,000 metres. Yes, uh, fantastic horse. He came to our rescue a few times. Uh, one particular time, I, I remember things were a bit grim there in the early 90s and we hadn't had a winner for nine months and it was the cupboard was bare and Tewakan came along and then won and then won again and then won again. Mm. It, was an early, it was an early lesson too. And um, I've always been a fan of pedigrees and he was a, he was, um, a lesson in that because he wasn't perfect confirmationally, but he had the pedigree I really liked. And that sale, Steve Cook, Steve, uh, Cook, Steve uh, Hood, Mm. Um, uh, said this one is the best on type and this one that you like on pedigree is okay. Well, the one that was best on type was uh, very, very slow, died a maiden, and the other one uh, ended up being the winner in 19 races. Just going to rattle through a few names now, Lou. Uh, Be positive, no tolerance. Uh, Villakazi Street was a very good performer for Keith Dryden. Typhoon Fury, who was your first and only runner in the Golden Slipper. Sir Bacchus. Yeah, so far, of course. Sir Bacchus currently racing, a winner last Saturday week. He's won half a million. Vaucluse Bay has won about 400,000. Handle the truth, a very promising three year old. 
Sweet Scandal, Kentucky Diva, and many, many others. Yeah. Well, I think they're the, the ones that have given you most joy so far. That's it. Yeah, the, 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 um, very much so. Those uh, ancient song, of course. Mm. Yep. Um, well, yeah, she, you acquired her as a broodmare, though, didn't you, Ancient Song? We, we did, yes. So we bought her as a tried mare. She a brain client had bred her and raced her, Robert Anderson in West Australia. And when um, she uh, retired from uh, – when he was going to retire her, he decided he'd sell her, and we asked for first option because we were helping plan her matings. And uh, with the help of Stuart Ramsey, I ended up buying her, and um, we then raced her for another year with Peter Moody as the trainer and – she coincidentally beat uh, into the night in the Group 1 Salinger. And uh, so our first time we had two runners in a Group 1 race who could know the race. Mm. But she, yeah, so she was another one. And the, the two that the two almost, the two that could have been were uh, Fist of Fury, who ran second to Northern Meteor in the uh, Coolmore and was favoured for the Oakley Plate Newmarket. I don't know what were his fourth and fifth starts. Mm. And he had a joint problem and just went downhill from there, so never fulfilled that potential. Mm. And uh, Better Land was the other one. He was a he he could have been a very good horse, but he um uh, was second favourite for the Golden Rose at his fourth I think career start and drew wide and then got injured during the race and he was never quite the same after that. And so he had a he won more races, but never at the same level that he looked like he's going to be. You've already mentioned some of your trainers, and I know you'd like to acknowledge a short list of trainers with whom you've had a happy and successful association. Mick Hood in early days, Kerry Walker in early days. Yep, so our first two trainers. Yep. And, and I have to tell the story that when we said to Mick Hood that we want to buy five horses, he said, oh, I couldn't take five horses. We've only got eight boxes. Mm. And I just it just highlights how racing has changed since the mid-'80s to now because you can imagine going up to a Darren Weir and, or a Chris Waller uh, or then other big operations and suggesting that uh, you can, well, to, to think that they'd only have eight boxes. That's uh, amazing how that's changed. Tony Noonan has been uh, a great performer for you. Peter Moody trained for you in the early times. Keith Dryden yep. has been an institution. Kerry Jordan trained successfully for Laurel Oak. Gary yep, Portelli. Yep. Yep. Gary Portelli has been a, a mainstay. And Chris Waller, of course, has quite a number of your horses currently. Yeah, more recently, that's correct. You know, one very important point, Louis, about Laurel Oak horses over the years is the fact that most of them seem to get to the races. The figures don't lie. Why? Why is this? Obviously, the trainers you deal with don't push horses until they're ready. Yeah, there's a, certainly it's a combination of it's very much a combination of that, and um, but they are trainers who will err on the side of the conservative if the horse reaches a point in time where a young horse, particularly where it's not quite ready, now give it more time, give it more time. So that is a that's a common theme throughout each of those trainers mentioned, and uh, many of the other ones that we use uh, inter- periodically. Um, and uh, I think also the fact that we only buy ten to twelve horses a year. I mean, I know we started with five, but I think in the first few years, we bought five horses, three horses, one horse, three horses in the first four or five years. So we weren't buying many. And mm. now we've got a bigger client base, but we still only buy 10 to 12 horses a year on average and keep one or two mm. that we've bred. And that's about our annual intake each year. So we can be very selective at the sale. So we go through, the, we make use, full use of the uh, the vetting program. We'll only buy horses that are 
deemed to be low risk by the vet or low risk with time and that low risk with time is one and the same because it means don't push them early and they'll be all right mm-hmm. and that's how it proves and i did an update of uh, figures i've got kept records since 2000 so i did notice one stage we had this long list of horses that had all raced so i started keeping records mm-hmm. and um from since the 2000 year 2000 intake mm-hmm. uh we've had 215 horses that we've put people into mm-hmm. and 205 of those have raced Mm, so okay. 10, 10, 10 haven't, and there's a tail behind all each of the ten. Uh, I think one of them was one of them was officially slow. The others all suffered uh, um, a problem in some way, shape, or form before they could get to the track. But that's ninety five percent of them have got there, and seventy five percent of the ones that have raced have won. So yeah, astonishing figures, Lou. Really, you're doing something right, aren't you? Touch wood, mate. Continue. Now, mate, for a long time now, you've been the Australasian consultant for brain pedigree analysis. Founded by the late Patrick Brain, they have stood the test of time and nobody uses a service more than you do. Uh, that's correct. Um, when I was always into pedigrees, I used to read everything to do with pedigrees when I started in the industry. had a, I might be my accounting, accountant's brain, but believed that there would be a reason behind most things happening in a certain way or it just suited my mentality be basic, having some basis to... Uh, go to when I'm selecting horses so pedigrees were important to me and I did a lot of reading and then um, I'd met Patrick Brain um, he had a he uh, had a horse with uh, Kerry, jo- uh, Kerry Walker sorry at the, mm-hmm. uh, we went to the races one day and Kerry said I could look after these two gentlemen who had the uh, runner in the first but one of them was Patrick Brain and I ended up um, not seeing Patrick then for well, for many years after, but the other gentleman and I became good mates with uh, Peter Cormack around a guest house in the South Coast. Mm. And uh, Patrick ended up becoming a victim of the Black Friday crash in late um, the late uh, 1980s. And uh, he and his wife decided that they'll do what he uh, knows best, and that is uh, pedigrees, which uh, he had been his hobby for many years. So he spent 18 months just uh, researching and, and fine-tuning his, pre- his findings and doing thousands and thousands of analyses using computer for the first time. And uh, in 1991, he offered his services in the UK. That season finished and he knew the Australian racing scene quite well, so he decided to offer the services here. He rang uh, our friend Peter in the south coast at Borley Point uh, and in the guest house, and, and Peter said, oh, I've got time to do that. I run a guest house. And his wife yelled out across the kitchen, what about Louie? And the rest <laughs> is history because 27 years later, we're still the the, um, the Australasian agents for uh, brain pedigree analysis, which his son <laughs> Will now operates. But what, what happened was that um, for the next few days, once we'd made the contact, um, he fed me the research that he'd done, which was reams and reams of fax paper back in those days. Mm. And I instantly realised that what I was dabbling around in reading, well, I was amateur league and what he was was Premier League because mm. he, was like, he was like a scientific approach and the mm. level of research and and, and that he'd done uh, was miles ahead of anything I could have I could have ever done. So I was an instant convert, and we've used that system ever since. And you learn along the way on just how to best apply it. Um, he said something, one telling thing. He said very early on, it took me many years to really appreciate it. And a lot of our clients took them a long time. And I keep drumming this into our clients mm. that a good mating will help a mare fulfil her potential. So at the end of the day, if you don't have a good mare that's capable of producing a horse, a good mating is not going to make her produce a star horse if that's what if if she just physically can't so and we proved that over the years by using good matings that might only produce horses that might only win one or two races 
and but that's the best they ever achieved when we moved those mares on no one ever did better with those mares than we did because we were doing the right matings the best matings for the mare but the mare was just a modest mare mm. so that so the key is just trying to find um horses that are capable of producing high quality offspring and mm. and since we've uh, done that at both yielding sales and our own breeding uh, things have improved dramatically for us now lou I know many people over the years who've been intrigued by your surname. Now, for a start, there's a silent L in there. That's it. Uh, Christmas time, very appropriate. Yep. Angels. <laughs> that's right. I've been practising uh, for the podcast, yep. Mahaika. That's correct. I believe it is a name of Hungarian extract. That's it. Both parents, Hungarian. Uh, they came, That came out post-war. New mum uh, wrote her a letter in 1952 to say, come out and marry me. She did that, and uh, she came out. Three weeks later, they were married, and uh, she catered. Did She did the cooking for her own wedding. That's how things were in post-war uh, Australia for the immigrants. She, uh, she, I remember a friend of Dad's walked in and said, I want to see meet the bride, and said this to the lady cooking over the stove, and she said, I am the bride. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Great story. And I'm delighted to report you hosted a special birthday party recently for your mother's 90th birthday. That's it. Um, yeah, last Saturday was uh, mum's 90th birthday, so we kept that Saturday aside um, and uh, had a good day here and it capped off with a good day. A few years ago, we had dad's 90th here and dad sadly passed away since, but he had his 90th here and that wasn't a happy ending because the Swans, Swans were playing Hawthorne in the grand final and Swannies got hammered that day. <laughs> but this, this one did have a happy sporting ending because Sir Bacchus won last Saturday afternoon and, <laughs> and, the, and an already happy room got even happier. Now, Louie, for many years, you and Jill were Laurel Oak Thoroughbreds and Laurel Oak Bloodstock. Now you have two other full-time hard-working members of the staff and I think they deserve recognition. Absolutely. Um, one of them is son Alex. Um, he came. He started working for us when he left university to give himself twelve to fifteen months um, practical experience in accounting before he uh, could then go out in the big wide world. Well, that's um, I don't know how many years that is now, but it's four or mm. five years later now. Mm. And uh, he's a vital cog in the uh, in the um, operation, and uh, and also very vital is Nicole who does all the admin and um, and helps um, in all aspects around the office. So that's Nicole Mackay, and she's, she's also a great asset to the team. Louis Mahiker, I've met few people in racing more passionate about the game than you. And the best endorsement for Laurel Oak is the fact that you've been in business for 32 years. And if passion and energy levels have anything to do with it, you are likely to be there for another 32 um, thanks, John. Much appreciate that. Yeah, I guess I still get white knuckle fever whenever <laughs> one of our horses races, and I think with the day I, day I lose that, um, then uh, I suppose the time it's time has come to give it up. But yeah, I just get that excited still whenever one of our horses races. That it's, I'm like a kid with a new toy, and that's the thing that keeps me going and striving to keep doing better and better all the time. I hope you keep suffering from white-knuckle fever for a long time to come. Louis Mahiker, it's been a delight having you on the podcast and thank you for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, John. Monday, April 8th until Wednesday, April 10, 2019 are the dates for the English Australian Easter Yearling Sale, the most important and influential yearling sale in this part of the world. 
While the final catalogue isn't released until January, it's shaping to be one of the best ever. There's a three-quarter brother to the Autumn Sun, a full brother to Merchant Navy, a half-brother to Shoals, a full brother to Brazen Bow, a three-quarter brother to Lankan Rupee, a full sister to John Snow, a half-brother to Unforgotten, a half-sister to Catchy, a half-brother to Dundeal, a half-brother to I Victory, a half-sister to She Will Reign, a three-quarter brother to Seamus Award, and a half-brother to Pino. Stallions with progeny in the sale are Schnitzel, Fastnet Rock, I Am Invincible, Reduce Choice, Sebring, Piero, and Written Tycoon. There's a strong international flavour with sires like Lord Canaloa, Deep Impact, Frankel and Tappet. There are 42 siblings to Group 1 winners and the progeny of 35 Group 1 winning mares. The preview magazine is available now and the final catalogue will be out in January.